What's up, deal makers? Brad here with another episode of Investor Creator. I appreciate you being with us today. And today I want to introduce you to Chris Benson. So Chris is a full-time investor operating self-storage all across the country. He's a major, major player in the self-storage world. And Chris is going to talk to us about how he got involved in real estate at the age of 29 and what led him to real estate in the first place how he bought a group of duplexes, but decided he didn't really like that asset class because he wasn't able to scale, and how he decided to jump into multifamily by developing and constructing a 64-unit multifamily complex in a town that had not seen development for almost 30 years. So how he decided to do that and his transition from multifamily to the self-storage world. And guys, I mean, to be frank, there's a lot of things that I don't know about self-storage. I learned a lot in this episode talking to Chris and Chris is actually operating a fund. He's raising $50 million right now with his second fund. He already did one fund and raised $47 million, but he's going to talk about his fund. And if you're an accredited investor, how you can get involved with, with what he's doing with self-storage all across the country. So I learned a lot of different things about how he analyzes markets, how he analyzes properties, some things that he would really want to stay away from when he's looking at a property to stay safe. And it was just a lot of fun talking to Chris. So without further delay, here's Chris. I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm a big believer that you're investing more in the people than you are the real estate. And, and ultimately, it's those people who are going to execute on your plan. Self-storage is interesting, Brad, that what really matters is the one, three, and five mile radius around the facility. It's a very micro-market game. Everything's cyclical, right? And if you look at the history of every asset class that exists, it capital finds yield, always. It will always find it. If you go into any business or any career path, you're gonna bump and bruise yourself away or around until you figure it out. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Chris, welcome to Investor Creator. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate the opportunity. Been looking forward to this all week. So let's first get into your background. So what were you doing before real estate investing and what pushed you into the real estate side of things? Yeah. Uh, so prior to real estate, my last real job was um, with Intuitive Surgical. Uh, they're the manufacturers of the Da Vinci robots. Some of your listeners may know um, what that technology is. But honestly, my background after college was sales, just in a different variety of different environments. So B2B, medical device, and that's kind of where I left. You know, great, specifically Intuitive Surgical, incredible organization, incredible technology, incredible growth. You know, from a definition of success, I would say that I was hitting all of the metrics of, you know, I was making a bunch of money and had good title. And the downside was my work-life balance was awful. Just overall, 
Uh, I traveled a bunch and missed a lot of kids stuff, right? It, it's the story that I think a lot of real estate investors, it's a path that many of us follow. And so for me, Brad, um, and I've said this numerous times before, you know, I remember waking up and saying to myself, nope, like I can't do this another 30 years. And Brad, the interesting thing, like what used to get me so much was you know, being in an airport late on a Friday. And obviously right now it's October 7th. So people aren't business traveling right now. But I remember being in an airport like late on a Friday and seeing that guy who's like 60s and carrying a bag. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, and so for me, it was about opportunities to create passive income. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad like everybody else, I guess. And you know, I'm not a super creative guy, but uh, real estate is kind of black and white, follows how I think. And it's just first. So that was where I said, all right, I'm going to try to build a path to uh, put some passive income through real estate. Okay. And so once you made that decision, how did you begin to build things? So tell us about the first deal and, and what those first few deals look like. Uh, you know, just from the amount of capital I had access to, um, it, it was going to be kind of single family or duplex rentals, small scale apartments. And that's what we did. The first deal, I actually still own that house is a duplex in the town where we used to live. And, you know, my original goal was to try to net 200 bucks a door. So that's kind of what I underwrote to, you know, if I could net 200 bucks a door, get 50 units, well, that's 10 grand a month didn't replace my income, but that was a pretty good start. And that's kind of how I was thinking about it. My underwriting was obviously all made up because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but, you know, you figure that out as you go along. So, you know, we did the, the duplex thing. We built up a fairly sizable portfolio. I mean, we had 22 units. And I think what I realized, Brad, is very quickly it wasn't scalable. Yeah. The people part of the business was awful. We had the, you know, maintenance and that kind of thing taken care of or, or pretty good systems in place. But the people part of it was just soul sucking. And I didn't want to deal with, and I don't mean to sound judgmental, like those people. I, you know, we had kind of B, B minus type apartments and we were just, you know, not scourge of the earth, but certainly our tenants weren't people that I would want to go hang out with a beer, you know, have a beer with. And, so I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I also read or heard a quote that I wish I could give credit to, but basically big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. You just make less money on small deals. And so I kind of forged a path to get into commercial real estate, a little bit larger scale. We sold that portfolio and ended up building a 64 unit apartment complex. And that was kind of when the light bulbs went off where I could see that absolutely how that business scaled. And, uh, that there was a path forward with that. And so at that time, did you have a, a strong construction background that you felt comfortable okay. doing and like, hey, let's go build 64 unit apartment complex? Absolutely not. If I knew what I knew now, I probably wouldn't have done the deal then. It, interestingly, how we got started in that deal was, you know, being from a sales background, I, I have no problem cold calling people, right? And just talking to people. And there was a guy that I used to go to church with 15 years ago. I, I literally hadn't talked to him since I was in high school. And uh, I called him one day and he owned a construction company. I said, his name's Steve Buck. I said, hey, Steve, you know, I want to build an apartment complex. I got a little bit of money. What do you got? And uh, he said, I just met with a municipality who's got this parcel of land in a town not too far from where I grew up. And they want to help develop some housing there. And um, long story short, that turned into a partnership where we built those 64 units. So Brad, really my role in it was and equity. I provided the equity 
Um, Steve and the construction company essentially built the property at cost and we went in at 50-50 partners. Very good. So, and I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but if a municipality is saying, hey, please come build housing, then I'm assuming there's a shortage of affordable housing in this market. Yeah, it's not a shortage of affordable housing. This particular market had some interesting dynamics. In the late 90s, they had an Air Force base there that basically was the town that shut down. Mm. It devastated the community, you know, like many communities across the U.S. So, you know, they had vacancy rates in 40%. Nobody had developed anything new in 20, 30 years. But the local municipality had done a really good job of converting the base to a tech park. And um, there was a lot of really great jobs coming into the park. And, and right now, as of today, they have almost 6,000 people that work there. So they've done a great job bringing private business in. And those people didn't live in the town because there was no nice housing and no real community to support them. So our thesis was we could go and build, you know, what I would consider class A apartments, right? You know, hardwood floors, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances type stuff at a price point far above what the prices in the market were, you know, we were almost 40% on a price per square foot, 40% above what a two bedroom, two bath would have rented for. And people said, oh, you're crazy. No one's ever going to pay this in this town. Look, there's 6,000 people on the base. Some of those people want to live here and not, not commute in and they'll pay, you know, market rates. And we started out at 1450 a month, which doesn't sound but in this market. That was a lot. So we built it in phases, 16 unit phases and tried to say like, all right, if we build 16, will it fill? And then we did it until we got to the 64. Okay, so you developed 25% of it to really test, does your hypothesis work? Will this development fly? And you saw that it did. So how in the world do you begin to analyze an opportunity in a town where there hasn't been development for 20 or 30 years? Like, So like one of my things, whenever I go and do infill development, it's like, I do not want to be the tip of the spear. Like let somebody else go and test it. And then I'll be like right behind you, you know, how do you begin to, to analyze the numbers and say, okay, this makes sense. Naivety. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I always say, Brad, that for that particular market, we had a feasibility study done, right? Which look, in my experience, I haven't seen too many feasibility studies come back and say, you shouldn't build. Most of them usually support your thesis. So I don't know necessarily if that data is worthwhile or not. But honestly, I have to give credit to Steve and his experience. Steve is probably in his early, late 50s, early 60s right now. So ton of experience in development, right? He knows the community. He's been in central New York his whole career. So he knows more than I did. And it was really blind faith in Steve's, uh, I guess, enthusiasm. And that's what I mean, Brad. Like sometimes knowing too much hurts. Oh, sure. Yeah. And right now, like I would look at that deal and be like, you're out of your mind. Like, I'm not going into that market. That's crazy talk. But he was right. And uh, ultimately, that will probably be, look, we bought the acre, we bought the land. It was a cornfield, literally. And we bought the land at 10 grand an acre, right? So our basis in, yeah, crazy. Um, that'll be the best investment probably I'll ever make in my life. You know, it's a long-term, I, I'll never sell that. I don't, I don't think unless something happens in my lifestyle that changes, but yeah, it, to answer your question, you know, it was a little bit of data, mostly just faith in a guy who knew more than I did. Well, that, that's amazing that you had somebody that was either that good or that lucky and maybe a little bit <laughs> yeah. of both. So that, that's fantastic. So it sounds like you got that done, it went well, and then you saw the ability to scale. So 
at some point you began to do syndication. So for those that don't really understand syndication, can you kind of define what that even means? Yeah, um, I mean, the analogy I always give to people for syndication, you know, and right now in COVID, not a good example, but airplane flights is a syndication, right? So typically most people don't have the ability to charter a jet on their own, it's too expensive. But if you split that up between 300 of your closest friends, everybody can afford a ticket. And the same thing in real estate. So. You know, from a syndication standpoint, I typically can't afford to fund a project's equity requirement on its own. You know, it's too much for my own personal balance sheet. But if I open that up to 100 of my closest friends, then, you know, we can all buy a share in the property and scale into something that we typically couldn't do individually. And I think that's, you know, generally a good definition of syndication. And it's not just in real estate, it's happening all around us. You know, airplane example is one that happens every day. And essentially, that's a syndication. Yeah, I think that's a really great example. So whenever you began to syndicate, did you do that in the multifamily space to begin with, or did you go directly to commercial self-storage? Yeah, so originally, Brad, my plan was I was just going to build our own self-storage or our own apartment communities and just syndicate the equity out. But what I realized really quickly is that there were other professional operators who were far further along in the game than I was that still needed equity. I guess in my head, Brad, and again, naivety, right? I assume once you get to a certain level, you know, there's just banks who are willing to fess up a hundred million bucks of line of credit and you can cycle through that equity as you need it. And, you know, in some cases there are terms may not be amenable to the operator, but once I started realizing that there were operators out there who needed equity, then I was, the light bulb went off for me because ultimately I'm a salesperson, right? And so I knew a little bit about real estate. I, I, you know, I knew enough to be dangerous. I wanted to invest my own money. Um, and at this point, I still had a job and my natural network was hospital executives, surgeons, and guys at the company who had made a lot of money as well. So everybody knew what I was doing and it kind of just organically grew into a group that, you know, generally when I went into a deal, they were interested in putting money alongside. So um, that's what we did. We invested passively in a, a number of um, multifamily syndications in primary markets and then about five years ago, as cap rates continued to compress, that's when I started looking for, okay, is there another asset class that maybe has a little bit more runway? And that's where storage came in. Very good. So let's talk about that. When you're analyzing different asset classes, I know that there's also a big jump for people to go to mobile home parks. So, and I'm sure that you looked at that asset class as well. Was there something that you didn't like about mobile home parks that you really liked about self-storage or were you open to really both? No, yeah, I, I probably it's interesting how it kind of paths, you know, open up for you. Um, so let, let me take a step back, Brad, and just share with you the, the, the data points that I used kind of make my determination. Mobile home parks would have fit in with the same criteria at the time that I looked at it. And basically it was historical returns. And I use a data set called the National Association, N-A-R-E-I-T um, database. It's free. It's public. I can send you the link. Your listeners can look at it. And basically what it allows for is you to compare any publicly traded REIT to another over a period of time, right? So if there's a REIT being traded on it, they have the data. And so you can compare, you know, apartments to self-storage, to industrial, to retail, to office. You know, the last 25 years, self-storage did just under 17% in the REIT space, which is incredible, right? It's 16.8. Apartments were really good too, 13-ish you know, retail and office in the double digits, real estate's done well. But so that was interesting. And then, you know, if, if you believe that kind of our economy is cyclical and everything that's happened in the past is probably going to happen again, you know, the recession, I, I want to see what happens in a downturn. 
789 stores lost less than 4% of its value at the read level. And, you know, other asset classes, apartments, lost close to seven, you know, office and retail were in the double digits. S&P 500 obviously got crushed. And so that's interesting. Now you have an asset class performing historically well and has some recession resilience. Um, the third thing that really stuck out for me was the, the market's very fragmented. And, you know, there's five publicly traded REITs that own 25% of the market. And the rest, a lot of regional operators like Reliant, and then still a lot of mom and pop operators. And mom and pop operators usually offer a value add play. And so that was where I kind of saw a runway is like, okay, there's some room to play in that asset class before institutional capital consolidates the entire thing. And um, to be quite honest, Brad, I probably could have applied those same three things to mobile home parks and with the same conclusion. I just happened to do it in storage. Very cool. So it seems like self-storage that there would be a whole lot to learn about a whole lot of different things. And that's one of the things that I really do enjoy about real estate is it's a really wide and a really deep knowledge base. But I mean, anytime you jump assets, it seems like there, there would be a whole new group of facts that you have to learn. And you have to also learn about it in all different markets across the country. So whenever you decide like, okay, I'm going to go from multifamily to self-storage, like how do you begin to educate yourself so that you your decisions remain safe? So, I mean, for me, it was investing with an operator who had already built a platform. In my case, it was Reliant. So how I did it was there's a list of a top 100 operators that um, the Self-Storage Association produces every year based on square footage owned. Kind of like multifamily, although I didn't know any, I assumed some of them needed equity. And so I just started calling the list and talking to people and saying, hey, you know, in the REITs, I kind of started below that and said, you know, hey, are you looking for equity partners along the way? And uh, we just started meeting them. So the people who said yes went out and met them. And I'm a big believer that you're investing more in the people than you are the real estate. And and ultimately, it's those people who are going to execute on your plan or the business plan. So we went out and met the people and kind of fell in love with the Reliance story and was an investor first. And that's how I learned, right? Digging into their underwriting and just trying to understand at a high level what was happening, how they viewed the world, and then just applying kind of my own critical thinking to ask good questions and answer those questions for myself. That makes a lot of sense. So at this point, how many markets are you guys in? Um, So Reliant, we're 50 properties across eight states. So I don't want to say 50 markets, but, you know, relatively self-storage is interesting, Brad, that what really matters is the one, three, and five mile radius around the facility. It's a very micro market game. So the MSA level data doesn't really matter. So I, I almost consider each one of those to be in markets, even if you know geographically they're relatively close. That makes a lot of sense. So what are you looking for when it comes to the market? I mean, I'm sure that you have some some data sets where it's just like, okay, we have to meet a certain criteria and threshold to even consider it. We're looking at the same things probably every real estate investor is looking at no matter what asset class, right? So population, job growth, in our case, traffic count is relative, right? Where the facility is, how many people are driving by it every day. A big part of us is the supply side, Um, especially in self-storage. There's been a huge development cycle the last five years, right? As people have made money in storage, that data that I made my decision with, you know, not the smartest guy in the world. So other people saw that too and said, hey, we should be this asset class. Um, and so, you know, for us though, what's interesting is 
because of that micro market, you know, kind of sharpshooters nature or nature of the asset class, a critical component is in understanding the story in those five, that five mile, three mile radius, right? So, and what I mean by that is it's not always just demographic data, right? Like, hey, you know, median incomes over 80 grand, medium house prices over $400,000, those types of metrics. Mm-hmm. With us, with storage, because it's so centric, right? I mean, it's a garage. So if it's not close to your house or work, you're not traveling to access a specific self-storage community, right? Like in apartments, maybe it's a school district and you're willing to drive to get into that school district, right? Or they have specific amenities or it's a community that you want to be a part of. In storage, you know, it's a garage. So people aren't doing that. So what we just spend a lot of time on is understanding where the tenants come from to the level of literally we get the address of each one of the tenants when we have a property under LOI, and then we'll just map it and see where they come from on the map. And, you know, it opens up exposure to what's your risk from a new development standpoint. If everybody's coming from the South of you and, you know, someone parks a new development to the South of you, you're screwed, right? Because those people aren't going to drive by current a new self-storage facility to get to yours. So we spend a lot of time with our acquisitions team and, you know, trying to understand the story of a market. And, and I'll give you just a quick example. So we just bought a property in Wilmington, North Carolina, the September 18th, or closed on it. And it's for any listeners who maybe are in that area, it's on Wilmington Beach Road. It's an island, right? And so we bought a facility kind of midway in the island all of the tenants, 80 plus percent of them, live to the south of it. Well, all the competitors are north. So literally all of these people to the south, if they want self-storage, they're not going to bypass this to go up here. Maybe they will, but majority of them aren't. And so that's kind of a market story that we look at. And if we had just, you know, look at a glance of Wilmington, you know, maybe Wilmington's oversupplied in the whole but it doesn't really matter when you can get to that level of granular detail. Is that helpful? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So I've always really looked at car washes. So mm-hmm. like the, the automated car washes, and it seems like those kinds of properties really have a, a life cycle. So maybe they last for 10 years and then somebody else builds a really nice one and, and people stop going to that one, right? Do you find the same thing with self-storage that if you buy a property that you think, okay, like we have improvements that are going to be depreciable over 20 years and then we're going to have to come in and do like a big facelift to, to keep it like relevant or do they have a, a longer lifespan than that? Um, look, I, I, I can only, I can't speak from experience because I haven't been in the industry that long, right? But what are you improving on a garage? It's literally a metal box on a cement pad. So I mean, other than some are air conditioned, some are heated, right? You've got climate controlled ones, and then you have drive up units, which are just a metal box outside. Um, what are you updating? The office? You know, I mean, that's kind of the, the interesting part of the business, right? Like with apartments, every 10 years, you're coming through with a fairly significant CapEx reserve to update each door so you can maintain rents. In self storage, you know, maybe some paint, you, you repaint the doors, make them look pretty. But other than that, uh, it's relatively capital expenditure light. Yeah, and that makes sense. So one more question about the market. So let's say that we're in a metro that you don't really like that well, mm-hmm. but you look at a property and you like the price and you like the one mile and the three mile radius. Is that a deal that you would 
probably do, or maybe not just because of the overall metro. And, and when you say not to dig in too much, but when you say you don't like the market, like give me some examples. Why wouldn't we have liked it? Let's say we're in Flint, Michigan four years ago, and we have a, a big water problem. And I don't know if they fix that or not, but like that's the best example that that I can give. It's like, okay, if we don't have safe drinking water, then maybe this is a problem, you know, or maybe we're in a, a market like, uh, and I know Pittsburgh used to be this way, maybe it's not now, that we have a, a population decrease each year. So something like that. I mean, without more detail, I would arguably say probably not. I mean, generally, we want to kind of be in the path of progress in an area of growth. But there's also, you know, let me give you one more example with some more detail to kind of help explain my thinking. So there's a town called Cashers, North Carolina. Um, And for people who are kind of in the Atlanta area, they may know of it. It's it's up in the mountains, a couple hours from Atlanta. Um, It's a summertime community for the wealthier of Atlanta. It's cooler, right? So you get up in the mountains, get some elevation, it's much cooler. So there's a really affluent second home community in that general area, right? But on paper, like the census data would suggest nobody lives there. But what's interesting is like you dig in and you find, you know, average home price of 480 grand, right? Which is outstanding, right? Huge. That's big value but there's 5,000 people in the town, you know, like, so something's going on there. And in that particular market on paper, nobody's going there. Right. But interestingly, one of the partners of Reliant has a home in cashers. So we know the market and, you know, there's a lot of second homes there and self-storage demand. So that property, you know, mom and pop owner, they built it 20 years ago. We're ready to retire. That made sense for us, even though in the tertiary market, that's not a space people are, it's population's probably not going to grow, but you're always going to have this steady base of an affluent community supporting it. So little things like that, but generally, no, I mean, if we're in a market that, you know, employers are leaving and populations migrating out, not where we want to be, unless there's some unique story that we can kind of carve out of it. Gotcha. That makes sense. So let's talk about the property. So I'm sure that just like every other investor, there's a certain criteria that you like to stay within. And I know that bigger institutional investors that they want a certain amount of square footage or a certain amount of units for them to even really look at the deal. So what does that look like for you? So our exits, Brad, um, Reliant has sold 36 properties in our history and 80% of them have been to the REITs. So, you know, we have a really good relationship with Extra Space, good relationship with CubeSmart, and we've vested a lot of properties to them. So we feel like we have a good handle on, you know, what the institutional ask is on the back end. You know, generally, and, and there's no hard and fast rules for this, but it, it's a mix between climate control and non, depending on the market you're in, right? If you're in South Florida, almost everything's 100% climate control, right? Super humid. If you put it outside, it's going to get mildewy and moldy. So depending on the market, some sort of mix between as far as how the property flows, where the office is, you know, does it have a retail look and feel to it, right? Does it, you know, you're drinking a Starbucks does it look like Starbucks when you walk in or is it some guy's house, right? I mean, typically we're trying to build, you know, a retail office that when a REIT comes in, they literally change the signage and the colors and they're good. You know, their job is to lease it up or whatever, you know, wherever the property is in its life cycle. So I would say institutional capital and the REITs typically don't want to develop, typically, depends who they are, which one, but typically don't want to develop and they're coming in for stabilized cash flow, right? So you know, they're willing to pay a pretty aggressive price or a compressed cap rate because they're trying to deploy capital in the space. And for them, 
they can grow NOI just in cost efficiencies because their management platforms operate at a scale that we don't, right? Public storage has got 2,300 plus properties. Well, their costs, their expense ratios are lower than ours, right? Makes sense. Well, they can look at a property of ours and say, all right, well, when we come in, we're automatically growing NOI because our expenses are less than how you can run it. Okay. And I think you're going to see more of that, Brad, in the asset class as some of the REITs start to consolidate because they all do the same thing and they know it, right? They're all just different shades of white. And long-term, I believe you're going to have more REIT consolidation. So instead of five, maybe you have two. And then they can really start to improve technology and the expense side. And you know, they, their platforms will compete at a level that the smaller operators aren't going to be able to. And it'll make sense for them to buy stuff at high prices. You know, operators like us will be happy to get out of it and you know, they'll operate with a lower expense ratio. Do you feel like self-storage will end up becoming highly consolidated? Yeah. It, Brad, everything's cyclical, right? And if you look at the history of every asset class that exists, it in, capital finds yield always. It will always find it. So it's a matter of time until, and it's happening now with, you can see the types of buyers that are trying to get into self-storage and build and buy portfolios. There's rumor of a really large portfolio that's on the market right now, trading at like low four, which is, that's, you know, crazy for self-storage. So there is a lot of money chasing deals and, and look as interest rates stay at zero, right? And there's nowhere for capital to get deploy into spaces that make money. Real assets, I think app rates are going to continue to compress. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. We were talking uh, off record about whether we go negative in the U.S. when it comes to bond rates. So, and, and who knows? You know, it's it's possible. So, if we're looking at a deal, a self storage deal, and we say, okay, we need to add value to this deal for this to make sense. So, what are the value add opportunities with self storage? Hardwood floors, granite countertops, and stainless steel appliances. You just put those in, and yeah, then you're you're done. You're golden. Yeah, so not quite like apartments, but. You know, I would say um, it, there's a different value add play on each property, at least for us. We don't go in with a cookie cutter approach. You know, sometimes value add for us, that property I mentioned in Wilmington, we're, we're building uh, just over 12,000 square feet of additional um, square footage, right? So climate, non-climate, we're going to build additional building, get it leased up. The growth in NOI is coming from that. Sometimes the value add is operational in nature. So you know, if a mom and pop operated facility, and when I say mom and pop, I mean, guys or gals who own maybe one or two facilities, not a huge sophisticated operation. Sometimes, you know, there, there's operational efficiencies to be had there, right? You know, just bringing rents up to market rate is important. Um, and there's ancillary income items that we can add that they potentially have not taken advantage of. Things like truck rentals, things like tenant insurance programs, point of sale items in the retail space, locks, boxes, that type of stuff that we can grow NOI through that income. And then sometimes, you know, it's a lease up value add, right? So we'll say to an owner, hey, you're doing an expansion, we'll buy it at C of O, right? So he'll take, he or she will take the construction risk and we'll take the lease up risk. And our risk is to get that property full and the NOI growth comes from leasing it up. So really no one size fits all value add strategy. It's kind of property by property specific. That makes sense. So let me ask about construction risk because I had a development one time. It was a single family development. We were doing basically a gated subdivision 
and um, went through planning. Everything was good and got just totally destroyed by the county engineer who didn't like the watershed plan and wanted to cut our, our density down. And so what is the construction risk with this? Because it seems like, okay, you're grading a lot. You run some electric, that's pretty easy, and you're pouring a concrete slab. So, I mean, is, is that really it, or is there a lot more to it than what I realize? I mean, are, are you, we talking about like a ground-up facility that Correct. get land appropriated for self-storage or a facility that already exists that we're putting expansion on? Yeah, let's say that the the zoning, it's titled, you have everything there, and, and we're just talking about infrastructure. Uh, I mean, I would say that, it, and this certainly is not my area of expertise, you know, within Reliant, we have a, a project manager who's been in the construction industry specific for self-storage for 30 years, right? So I obviously rely on his guidance there. But yeah, I mean, generally, a self-storage facility is relatively straightforward to build. Depends where you're building. Obviously, there's a lot of variables that go along with it. But yeah, you're correct. I mean, we do run into issues. For example, we had a development project we were working on this year where the municipality pushed back on the parking, right? You know, how much parking we were going to be able to allot for the particular facility. And ultimately, I think it's a red herring just because they don't want us to develop. But, you know, we go to war on those things you would with, with any particular asset class. So I don't want to say it's, you know, there's complexities to all construction projects. And, it, you know, my opinion is, there's always some level of variance you have to plan for because you don't know until you're in the middle of it. But for the most part, I would say, you know, compared to like a, a new multifamily building, we're going to be a little bit easier to build because again, cement pad, metal box. And that makes sense. So, I mean, are you guys looking at around a hundred dollars a foot, something like that when it comes to construction? Yeah, Brad, I think it, it depends on the market for sure. sure. Yeah. So the land, or if, if we're including the cost of land, yeah, 100, 115 bucks, maybe in a, in a bigger, stronger marketplace where the, the land cost is going to be a little bit higher. But I think that's, you know, I, there are some tertiary markets you can come in much cheaper than that. But generally, I think that's probably good back of napkin math. Got it. And that's the kind of math I usually do. So, is there anything that would just absolutely disqualify a property? So you like the one mile, you like the three mile, you like the market, but in terms of the property itself, is there anything that's just like, no, we don't want to deal with that? When you ask that question, my first blush is supply. If there's in the market, new supply coming to market, right? You know, we work with municipalities to understand what the development pipeline is. And let's say, you know, a REIT's building a facility down the street, and in six months, another guy's going to break ground on a private self-storage facility. We probably don't want to be a part of that. You know, that's the, the, the biggest risk in storage right now is new supply impacting your ability to, you know, drive occupancy and raise rents. If you have multiple facilities in a market in lease-up, that's going to hurt because everybody, it's a race to the bottom to get your facility filled, right? And eventually and the REITs work this way, right? Their goal is price very low, get people in, and then revenue manage them up to profitability, right? So they have some pricing algorithms that based on occupancy, their prices are changing daily. And the in-place tenant rental rate increases are where they're getting back to profitability, right? New people coming in, they're willing to, wait, willing to give away the farm just to get the occupancy there. You know, so we'll underwrite some deals um, that are being managed by the REITs that are privately owned and maybe being sold where, you know, the facilities, I don't know, 60% full and economic occupancy is 20. You know, like wow. for us, 
we look at that and say, okay, then the pricing has to be based on the 20, right? That's the REITs. I don't mean it's a strategy. It's just, you know, they get people in and then slowly manage them up and close that gap between the economic and physical occupancy. Really interesting that they have an algorithm for that. I had no idea that that's how that pricing works. Oh, yeah. The pricing algorithms on the REIT level, um, and to some extent us, it's changing daily, right? So they are looking at occupancy across the portfolio and the markets they're in. And if we're in the market with them, we basically have to follow suit, right? Because, you know, if today they decide to drop 10 by 10 units, 20% on their price, well, if all of a sudden we've stopped renting 10 by 10 units and we look at their price and look at ours, uh, we say, oh, well, that's why, because it's a lot cheaper to rent their box than it is ours. So, you know, I think that's our thesis has been built around moving towards tertiary markets so that our competitive set is a little bit less sophisticated and allows us to you know, essentially be a price leader on the rent side of things and a flagship in the uh, in the community. That makes a lot of sense. Switching gears for a moment, we've already talked about how self-storage really in the last downturn did pretty well. So lost, I believe you said 3.8% in terms of value. With COVID happening, and we've been, I guess, on the, the largest rocket ship in terms of value skyward that we've ever had in real estate and probably the stock market as as one cycle. And so I think for the last two or three years, a lot of investors, whatever the asset class, have been looking at things and thinking like, how long can this possibly go on? And then COVID hits. So where's your mind at right now in terms of your acquisition and what you guys are doing based on what you're seeing in the economy? Well, I'll give you my own disclosure first. I'm by no means the person you should ask for economic advice. I'm a relatively intelligent human being. I like to and you know take other people's opinions, synthesize my own. In my personal opinion, let, let's take COVID for an example. Interest rates, the Fed came out and said interest rates are going to stay low until 2023 until they hit these specific inflation and full employment guidelines. That's never going to happen, ever. The, the inflation, they're talking about a two-year average that we have not done in like the last 30 years. Okay, so let's assume for a moment interest rates stay at zero. Well, the Fed continues to pump tons of liquidity in the marketplace, right? as everyone I'm sure who's listening is aware, the, the, the CARES Act. And how they're doing that is they're buying treasury bonds, right? So at the end of this year, 2020, the Fed is projected to buy $3.5 trillion on their balance sheet of treasury bonds. Well, if we raise interest rates, the debt payments on those go up. Well, right now we're running a deficit and we're printing money to pay the, our investors' um, returns today. So if we raise interest rates, that means we have more money, create more liquidity to, to essentially pay, or we default on them and you know basically they're backed by the US government and then the entire economic system implodes and no one cares about self-storage anymore. So my first thesis is interest rates probably are not going anywhere in the medium term, let's say five to eight years. I could be completely wrong on that. Talk to me in three years. But that being said, if that's the case, institutional capital, right? Big boy money, pension funds, insurance companies, that has to be deployed somewhere. It has to go somewhere. They can't sit on billions of dollars because they have to pay it out and hit certain levels of returns to be able to pay out their constituents, right? If I'm a pension fund and I have, you know, $100 million of pension payments due every year, maybe I have to hit 4% a year on my portfolio to continue to fund that. Well, so they can't sit on cash and just wait. 
And so it's going to be deployed into things, right? Real things, gold, right? Real assets, commodities, equipment, real estate, things that are tangible, I believe. And look, the stock market has to correct. There, it is completely irrational what's happening right now. It's not if, it's just when. And so let's assume the stock market corrects, interest rates stay low. Where are people putting their money? So I think ultimately real asset values go up. And Brad, disclosure again, maybe I'm wrong. No, we, we have you on the record now as saying exactly what's going to happen. For perfectly fair. Um, and I'll own it, I, I'll own it later on. But it, it's hard for me to see how this changes, except some catastrophic change in the economic system. And, and that certainly could happen. So I think values continue to ratchet up, right? And, you know, there are other countries across the world where cap rates are in the threes, right? And can we go there? Maybe. Yeah, that, that's very true. And one of the things that I like about what we do, creating owner financing on single family is it's pretty well recession-proof in the single family world. And I've often looked at commercial assets and it seems like there's three main ones that appear to be recession-proof or as close as can be and self-storage being at the top of that list because people aren't going to get rid of their stuff. you know. And if they're downsizing, they're going to have more stuff that they have to store. Then it's like, for me, I think I have three storage units full of stuff. It's like, do I really need this stuff? But, you know, it, it can't go in my house because my kids will destroy it. And it has sentimental value because a lot of it was my grandmother. So, you know, you, you have the stuff. You're our best customer. Just keep paying. You're our best customer. Yeah, man. I, and I probably won't go to the property this year. So it's just I appreciate <laughs> you guys being there for me and we'll keep paying. So I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are listening to this and thinking, you know, I would really like to get involved in self-storage. But. I'm not going to figure out an algorithm for pricing. I'm not going to really know the difference in what the one mile radius and the three mile radius should look like. But I know that you have a really great opportunity for people that want to invest in a fund and syndicate and put their capital to work. So if you don't mind, just tell us about that and, and tell us what you've got going on with the fund. Yeah, I mean, Brad, I think most of our investors make a decision where they like the idea of the asset class, but there's always a choice. Do I want to be an active investor or a passive investor? There are a lot of people and I tell people all the time, look, if you want to be an active investor, do it. <laughs> You'll make way more money. You can take the middleman out. But the downside to that is time, right? Do you have the time to do it? And you're going to make mistakes along the way, right? And, you know, just like if you go into any business or any career path, you're going to bump and bruise yourself away or around until you figure it out. And real estate's no different. So most of our investors are people who say, look, I like the idea of the asset class, but like you said, I'm never going to go out and buy my own, right? I have, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a business owner. I'm something where my time is taken up day to day, but I'd like to get exposure to this asset class for the reasons you stated around the recession resilience. So, you know, we're doing right now a fund. So think like a mutual fund of self-storage properties where basically you invest at the fund level and then the fund goes out and buys properties. We just launched it at the beginning of the summer. We have two properties in it right now. The goal will be to raise $50 million in equity in the fund and end up somewhere close to 10 properties. Our last $50 million fund, we actually closed it at 47 million and we had 11 properties in it, right? So as an investor, now I'm diversified across 11 properties, four states, multiple markets, multiple business plans. So if one tanks, hopefully it's buoyed by the performance of the others. Now, you know, it's the same diversification play 
that people who invest in mutual funds are accounting for. So we're raising capital for that right now. And, you know, we expect that we'll be able to fill the portfolio with a similar bank of properties. And it just gives people an opportunity to get exposure to an asset class with a professional operator. You know, I mean, we have infrastructure, right? Reliance, a top 25 operator in the US. So all of that infrastructure you described, that's what we're doing every day. So most of our investors who come in say, hey, I want to be passive. In some cases, learn mostly just, hey, write a check and I want to get, you know, a quarterly dividend from you and let me know when we're done. <laughs> yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. So for those that are interested in, in getting in touch with you and talking to you about the fund, what's the best way that they can do that? Probably our website, um, relyoninvestments.com. There's a, a tab, our investments. You can go in and see what we're working on, a whole bunch of information on it. And there's all kinds of contact us buttons, invest now buttons, where if you enter your information, myself or somebody from our team will call you, talk through what you're thinking and uh, get you more information to answer any questions you may have. Very good. Well, guys, we're going to put that in the show notes as well as the information that Chris gave earlier about how to find the data on the REITs and analyze the different asset classes. We'll put that in as well. Chris, enjoyed it very much, man. I learned so much and really appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity, Brad. Have a good rest of the day.